0: Good evening to everyone. Um, my name is Manuel Penadas. I'm a researcher in the Transnational Law Project here at the And I am here on behalf of Dr. Jan Klahensikan, who is on sabbatical leaf, as you know, this term. But he will be back in January to teach the LLM course on advanced issues of international uh, commercial arbitration in organized um, and fall within the Transnational Law Project that he directs or co-directs. Um, and um, tonight's session is the fourth event organized by this Transnational Law Project to help you preparing for this um, module on the second, on the second um, term. As you know, these are all recorded events. They are all available in the Transnational Law Project webpage, which can be useful. We will record this one, if that's okay. That's right. Fantastic. And um, as, as you know, in the first two seminars, we have John Paulson and giving us a very broad but practical and sort of down-to-earth presentation on international commercial arbitration in general and two weeks ago we had george barn on the importance of the seat of the arbitration as well very interesting and today i have the pleasure to introduce constantine partecides who will share his views on the art of selecting the <coughs> right arbitrator, I think that's like a young's title most probably, um, and is a topic of tremendous practical importance because <coughs> it, it deals with the selection of the person or persons who are going to adjudicate the dispute of the parties, and that goes down to the essence of this dispute resolution mechanism, arbitration, is. Mm, it's a, it's a topic that has been, apart from practically interesting, also very fashionable in the last two years, in generating lots of debate in, within academics, within practitioners, and also arbitral institutions. As you know, it appeared in the BISMUT last year, and some of the, you may know as well it's indirectly present in the BISMUT problem of this year. And one of the manifestations and um, of that importance that John Paulson, our centennial professor in here at LSE, delivered here his very provoking or highly controversial presentation on the unilaterally appointed arbitrators. Um, I'm sure Constantine Bortecides will also um, have a very interesting presentation, as in line with the previous presentations he is one of the leading professionals in arbitration I'm sure you know that he heads he heads the international arbitration group in Freshfield where he's a partner, and he is co-author of one of the most important textbooks, which is uh, Law and Practice of International Arbitration, which I'm sure uh, you will, be, will will become an mm, intense companion <laughs> of you in during the second during the second term. Um, but mm, I think I don't need to elaborate much more on that, I hand over to you and thank you very much for coming and thank you very much to you for coming. I encourage you to keep coming to these events because they are really interesting and they will be very useful for your LN term, the LM sector. Thank, thank you very no much.
1: Good evening, everybody. Um, as you've heard, my name is Constantine, part I head the International Arbitration Group in London at Freshersbrook-Ausdaringo, I'm not the global head, the global head is your centennial (coughs) professor Jan Paulsen who I've worked with uh, from this height as a lawyer to this height. Uh, He is my mentor and I uh, commend him to you. He is uh, one of the leading lights in the field, if not the leading light, uh, a true visionary and has created a generation of true believers in the arbitration process um, and I'm one of them. So I speak to you as someone who believes in the process of international arbitration, uh, and I hope uh, that doesn't mean that I'm not critical of the process when it needs criticizing. Uh, And it is my pleasure uh, this evening uh, to talk to you about one of the key elements in the art of international arbitration. Uh, When I speak to my eight-year-old daughter about what international arbitration is, what I do, um, I try and simplify. Uh, so I tell her that what I do, what Daddy does, is he pleads cases, he argues cases for his clients in front of a private judge. And she knows what a judge is. And then she says to me, well, if it's a private judge, well, who chooses the judge? And I tell her, well, Daddy chooses the judge. And she says, ah, so that means, Daddy, you always win. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, actually, but it's interesting. It's an interesting question, which goes to the heart of one of the key features of international arbitration and one of the key tensions of international arbitration Uh, international arbitration can be defined in many ways but an uncontroversial way in which to define it is by reference to the fact that it is a dispositive binding international dispute resolution process in which the parties appoint their decision maker that is a key feature of the process. And it's not only a key feature, it's an important feature, it's why many clients choose, why many participants in the international economy, be they corporations, individuals or governments, choose international arbitration as their dispute resolution process. It reassures them that they have appointed one, perhaps the only, member of the tribunal. It reassures them that they will be heard it reassures them that they will be understood um, what it should reassure them is that their chosen arbitrator will agree with them and the difference is very significant and so we come to one of the key tensions in the arbitral process how can we who believe in the process, who use the process who require it to be a legitimate process accept and ensure that arbitration does not become a decision by a partisan a decision by a partisan that you appoint that results in an enforceable award that is not subject to appeal and that can be enforced in all of those jurisdictions that have signed for example the New York Convention close to 150 states now very very significant outcome And if it's to be legitimate, we must ensure that even though we are choosing our decision-maker, we are not choosing partisans who will decide simply because we have appointed them. So how is this tension resolved? Well, it's resolved by the ubiquitous application of the standards of independence and impartiality. Every international arbitrator appointed to a tribunal... Of one or three members needs to be independent and impartial. That is the bedrock upon which the whole process, the legitimacy of the process, is built. And we're going to, we're going to touch on what those concepts really mean in concreto, in practice. That is actually the only qualification, formal qualification, that international arbitrators need there is no other designation in law or in most sets or major sets of arbitral rules of qualifications that an arbitrator must fulfill to be appointed other than being independent and impartial so beyond the question of independence and impartiality we who work in the field of international arbitration as counsel spend a lot of our time working out how to optimize this most important procedural choice that you have at the beginning of the process. How to make the most of your ability to appoint an arbitrator, who must be independent and impartial, but nevertheless, you hope, will be predisposed because of his or her profile, legal tradition, approach to cases, to deciding the case, impartially, but in your favor. That is a key element of the art. Of arbitration, and I want to uh, spend some time with you explaining how we go about making that key choice once we've dealt with independence and impartiality, uh, and getting your thoughts on how one goes about making the most of that choice because, as I said earlier, it is one of the key procedural choices you have in the process. And that is a key part of the tactics of international arbitration. And then I want to conclude by. Referring to what lies between the standards of independence and impartiality and the ability to exercise tactics to appoint someone who is independent and impartial, but you think is likely to be predisposed to your case because of the way in which they will look at the issues in the dispute. And that distance in between has been referred to by Jan Paulson recently as the moral hazard in international arbitration. Appointing someone who formally fulfills the standards of independence and impartiality but simply cannot ignore the fact that the reason they're in the case, the person that has appointed them to this lucrative position of international arbitrator is one of the parties that perhaps they would prefer not to fight against. The moral hazard. And there is a proposal on the table, which is a very recent proposal, Presently, an unpopular proposal for how to deal with that moral hazard. And that is the third part uh, of my presentation. And then I want to conclude uh, by uh, some remarks on one institution that exists in international arbitration that gives young practitioners, including future young practitioners such as you, the opportunity to see how an arbitral tribunal actually works in practice. The so called secretary to the tribunal. And that is what I want to talk about at the end of the presentation. So, um, this is our agenda. What is independence and impartiality, first of all? That's the criteria for appointment. Secondly, the tactics of appointment, how to choose your independent, impartial arbitrator. And thirdly, the future. Should we continue to choose our own arbitrators? Uh, or as my daughter would have it, if you're choosing your judge, why don't you always win, the window, which unfortunately I don't always do. And then we're going to conclude with uh, the use of secretaries for tribunals, because I think it's a related subject, and it's one that I hope will be of interest to those of you, I hope some of you fall into this category, who are interested in the future in pursuing careers in international arbitration. So, uh, we begin with independence and impartiality. Uh, and I'm going to try and make this session, everybody, because I remember just a few years ago being in your position of how easy it is, particularly in the evening, after a day of maybe demonstrations, some of you are on, I don't know, uh, how easy it will be to disengage in this submission. I'm going to try and involve you uh, in this by asking questions. Uh, and uh, I'm going to try and put you in the same position as I am put by arbitral tribunals, and that is I'm asked questions that I sometimes don't feel I have a good answer to. Uh, but it is not a voluntary question. So I'm going to invite volunteers to answer questions. Uh, and if I don't get volunteers, uh, and I hope I will, uh, then I'm going to exercise the authority of an arbitral tribunal to appoint one of you to answer the question that I ask. And my first question is uh, a very easy one. Um, what do you think, perhaps an easy one, is the difference between independence and impartiality, this phrase that we often see in combination. Uh, well, I'll just try. When you. Independence,
2: uh, when we talk about independence, it means that the arbitrator does not have a pecuniary interest, a financial interest, in the outcome of the case. And when you talk about impartiality, that uh, he's not
1: biased. Well, I think you've put your finger on the real difference. Um, But before I give you my view, does anyone have a different view? Or does anyone have a slightly different view of the difference between independence and impartiality?
2: Well, I think independence means that the arbitrators are free from the kind of wishes of the party both the parties and impartiality on the other hand means that they will not be taking sides. They will not be like, kind of by like, the desired procedures by the parties. That's independence.
1: Well, I think you're both right. Um, this is how I would describe it. Independence focuses on the relationship, factual, objective relationship that exists between an arbitrator and the parties or their council. In the arbitration. Are you, in some way, as a matter of fact, dependent upon? Doesn't necessarily mean that you're biased, but it means that you may have some form of relationship with one of the parties in the dispute. That is what independence gets out. That's dependence, independence. Impartiality, as you said, goes to a state of mind. It's not about the objective relationship that you may have with one of the parties, it is about whether in considering the issues in dispute, you are partial, you are likely to favour unfairly one of the parties. And um, to explain that difference, to uh, illustrate that difference, what I would say is different legal sources in the past have focused on different ones of those two standards. So for example, the English Arbitration Act 1996, which is applicable to arbitrations that take place in this jurisdiction, focuses only on the concept of partiality. The logic being, ultimately, all you're interested in is, is your arbitrator impartial? Is your arbitrator going to decide this dispute fairly without bias to one of the parties? Dependence is simply independence, which talks about facts of relationships, just a way of getting at, just a way of evidencing or presuming that you therefore suffer from partiality. And so the English Arbitration Act focuses just on impartiality and it sees independence as effectively uh, evidence of that partiality. One of the major sets of arbitral rules, the ICC rules, International Chamber of Commerce, which has its own, as I think you all know, International Court of Arbitration, a private arbitration institution, and probably still the major private international arbitration institution in the world, historically only spoke about independence. It didn't focus on impartiality. What was the logic of that? Well, the logic was that they were. It wasn't that they were disinterested in bias. It's that you simply cannot judge partiality bias because it requires you to reach a conclusion about a state of mind. What you can judge objectively are the facts of a relationship with one of the parties or the council. So the way that the ICC historically got at the same problem was by focusing on independence, something that could be objectively actually verified. Now, the ICC rules have been amended this very year, uh, and the new rules come into effect from the 1st of January 2012, and the new rules refer to the formulation both independence and impartiality. It was regarded as something of an anomaly that impartiality was not required for, uh, that has now been corrected and the formulation independence and impartiality I would suggest to you is almost ubiquitous, it's almost everywhere now in international arbitration rules, both are required one is very subjective, the other is objective but they are both getting at the same mischief and the way that you will see the formulation reflected in most sets of arbitral rules is by use of the following phrase, the arbitrators will disclose all circumstances that give rise to justifiable doubts as to an arbitrator's independence and impartiality. So the way in which you police those standards is by imposing upon the arbitrators an obligation to disclose circumstances that may give rise, often the word may is there, to justifiable doubts as to an arbitrator's independence and impartiality, that is the nice, vague phrase that we have in most international rules to play with, uh, and it allows a fair bit of mischief and I have to say that it is the subject of a fair bit of mischief in the modern application the modern practice of international arbitration. We are now everybody uh, it 's often called uh, in the era of the tactical arbitrator challenge. Given a phrase lies like giving rise to justifiable doubts to an arbitrator's independence and impartiality is leading not only to an increasing number of arbitrator challenges, but also an increasing prominence in the major cases of arbitrator challenges. The first question I will ask myself when I'm appointed by a respondent in a case where the claimant has already appointed an arbitrator when it has commenced the arbitration is, do I have grounds for a challenge here, given what has been disclosed by that arbitrator? Tactical challenge. Why do you think uh, that a challenge might be tactical? Why do you think that it might be good tactics if you are a respondent's counsel to challenge the arbitrator appointed by the other side. After all, what if you're unsuccessful? Perhaps that arbitrator is going to hold it against you for the remainder of the proceedings. Even if he wasn't or she wasn't uh, partial and dependent, perhaps somehow you are affecting his or her state of mind. What do you think the reasons for mounting a tactical challenge might be? It's a way of delaying things, and you know it can delay things quite significantly. And you know, there have been cases of arbitrated challenges being decided by the institution, and then that decision being the subject of a legal action in the courts of the place of the arbitration, where the challenging party does not accept the outcome of the institutional decision, because the decision will be made, depending on your rules, probably by the arbitral institution. That's one good reason uh, to mount a tactical challenge. Uh, Maybe if you think that in previous cases or in the
2: the relevant subject, that this point of view might be uh, uh, countering what you actually want to achieve or what you want the awards to point to. if he he has a habit of, in certain cases, uh, moving in such or such way?
1: And, yeah, then you Well, that 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 Well, that would not be a tactical challenge. That would be a challenge based on a genuine concern that the arbitrator might not be impartial. And that would be a good reason to challenge. But for the moment, and we're going to come to that, for the moment I'm interested in reasons why if you're a respondent's counsel, you might be interested in mounting a tactical challenge. We've heard one good reason, which is delay. You're going to delay the process, and you may be interested in that if you're a respondent. Any others?
2: Well, the uh, counterpart may focus uh, on the question uh, why the arbitrator is impartial, <coughs> but then focusing the ground of the dispute itself. And it can give the uh, other party to... Uh, Gain some more time to prepare uh, a defence and
1: the, uh, the counterparty will lose uh, part of his, his time to prepare uh, his defence. well um, it, it certainly will delay things I don't think it will use up only one party's time because the way in which the challenge will work is once the challenge is made the proceedings are stalled until the challenge is resolved so it is not using up one party's time to prepare for example the statement of claim But it will delay the progress of the arbitration.
0: Uh, It may lead to a settlement, because the party wants to come to a conclusion, and uh, that could be more beneficial at at that time for anyone
1: of the parties. Yeah, every step that you take that makes things more difficult uh, may make settlement more likely. It depends. You might also see it as an exacerbation of the dispute, which makes settlement less likely. <laughs> um, that's a judgment that one has to make depending on who the characters are involved.
2: Uh, Actually, uh, uh, the arbitrator who was challenged may uh, later uh, try, uh, try to show that he's independent and impartial and, and in the course of the proceedings take this into account.
1: Well, that's a, that's a very good point and, I, and I, that's one of the points I wanted to come to. Um, let, me, let me give you another couple of reasons. One is you're delaying. Uh, things and that may be objectively an advantage for you. Secondly, who knows? The arbitrator may just resign. Arbitrator that is absolutely comfortable that he or she is independent or impartial may decide, I don't want this trouble. If I'm being challenged, let me make it easier for the party appointing me by removing myself so the issue goes away and they can appoint another arbitrator. And you know, sometimes In one of my cases, for example, where the opponents challenged my arbitrator, um, the arbitrator resigned, in my view, all too quickly. I would have liked him to stay on the tribunal. But his view was it was a very early stage in the arbitration. Even though he didn't agree with the challenge, the best thing for the parties would be simply to remove themselves. And sometimes arbitrators do that. Another reason uh, is that, you know, sometimes these challenges are successful. And that goes down to the fact that we have Um, very nebulous concepts of independence and impartiality that are interpreted in different ways by different institutions in different parts of the world. And so uh, the lack of clarity about what independence and impartiality means historically has encouraged more challenges because you can always, always try your hand. You always have a chance of success. And then the most tactical of reasons, the one that's just been referred to here, uh, sometimes parties will think that they can affect the psychology of an arbitrator by making it very clear to the arbitrator on day one that they're watching her and that she must act in a way that removes any possible doubt of impartiality impartiali- of or, or dependence through the course of the arbitration of course a strong-minded arbitrator will not let this affect the way in which they decide the dispute one way or the other but there are some arbitrators that may react to a challenge by spending the remainder of the arbitration looking to prove to the party that challenged them that they are absolutely independent and impartial. And that is an interesting part of the psychology of the arbitral tribunal. Th- that there is another reason which I've seen happen uh, once or twice in practice, and that is that sometimes, even if you don't have a good ground for the challenge, By challenging, perhaps in excessive terms, you will evince from the naive arbitrator a reaction that itself constitutes the basis for a valid challenge. This is a case I saw before the LCIA, where an arbitrator was challenged on frivolous grounds, but reacted to the challenge in terms in a letter that were so excessive, that they showed that his state of mind had been changed in a way that now led to valid grounds for doubting his impartiality. You wouldn't expect that of uh, an experienced arbitrator. That's not something that will happen very often. But all reasons why, everybody, we are seeing in the world of international arbitration, and this is not a positive development, uh, an increase in the number of tactical challenges. And the main reason for them is the nebulousness, the lack of clarity of these standards of independence and impartiality. And if you get a room full of arbitration practitioners together and you ask them a question uh, about the following circumstances, whether they constitute grounds for challenging successfully or not, they will give you, typically, different answers. I'm going to ask you this quest- these questions and see what your answers are. So I'm going to give you the proposition and I want you to tell me whether you think that this is grounds for a successful challenge. I'll start with an easy one. The arbitrator has a significant financial interest in one of the parties or the outcome of the case. Yes. How many of you know the idea rules? Is that that something that you, is that something that is generally known as Perhaps not. Uh, let, let me keep going, therefore. Let me give you another one. The arbitrator has previously published a general opinion concerning an issue which also arises in the arbitration. Do you think that's the, gr- that's the grounds for successful challenge? Who says yes? That's about 20%. Who says no? Who doesn't know okay so we're pretty evenly split there um, between those who think it is those who think it isn't let me give you another one perhaps a slightly more difficult one the arbitrator has within the past three years served as counsel for one of the parties or an affiliate of one of the parties in an unrelated matter but has no ongoing relationship with that party. Who thinks that's a ground for successful disqualification? One person, a few people. Hands high, please, because I'm having difficulty. Okay, that's a fair number. Who thinks it is a ground for disqualification? Again, pretty evenly split. Well, because the same result would have been given in an arbitration conference of leading practitioners but six years ago. In 2004 the IBA decided to put a group of international practitioners from all over the world together to come up with guidelines on conflict of interest in international arbitration and that is what they did and those guidelines not only set out a description of uh, the general principles of independence and impartiality but they end in three lists. Um, the so-called red lists, orange. orange lists, and green lists, which provide you with uh, non-exhaustive circumstances that would qualify. Red lists, the first circumstance I gave you, as immediately disqualifiable. Green list, the second circumstance that I gave you. You've expressed a general opinion uh, in a publication before which is not only not disqualifying, but is something that you don't even need to disclose as an arbitrator. And then what is called the orange list, the most difficult of the lists, on which the IBA does not offer a decision or a view as to whether it is disqualified or not, but says that it is a circumstance that should be disclosed, then to be decided by the deciding organ. If it's the ICC, for example, the ICC Court of Arbitration. So the question is, are the IBA guidelines on conflicts of interest the answer? Now I can tell you that like every innovation in the field of international arbitration, when they were introduced, they were extraordinarily uh, unpopular, particularly with arbitrators, surprisingly enough. Uh, but like every innovation in international arbitration that has been unpo- really unpopular, we have seen its positive effect on the process of international arbitration in helping to clarify what is still regarded as a difficult, difficult issue. But are they the answer uh, to the doubts that still exist in international arbitration as to what independence and impartiality means? Uh, Well, the answer to that is is no, because uh, the test in international arbitration uh, is justifiable doubts as to an arbitrator's independence and impartiality the first word is may give rise to justifiable doubts and that test is not an objective test it is a subjective test it is applied in the light of the eyes of the parties that are involved in a case and of course parties' genuine perceptions of what may give rise to justifiable doubts to impartiality uh, or independence will vary in different parts of the world across cultural boundaries. And I'm going to give you one example of that. Uh, The example is uh, the example of Barristers' Chambers here in London. Now, if you are a litigator, or if you're involved in the legal profession here in London, you have absolutely no problem with the fact that you may be in a case where the other side's case is presented by an arbitrator that happens to be from the same Barristers' Chambers as the judge was. You may have that case happen very regularly and indeed it is regular and no one in this place has any problem with that because it is frequent that barristers from the same chambers will appear opposite each other or will appear in front of judges who are from the same chambers. So we English are fine with that. It's something that we accept. We understand that that's how the system works. But then you translate that To an American setting and you tell an American lawyer that yes they may be in the same quotes law office but there's nothing wrong with the fact that your arbitrator and the other side's lead counsel happen to be from Essex court chambers just across the way here it's the way it happens and they will not understand that and i would go further and say it's quite right that they don't understand that why should they be expected to understand it there are different cultural perceptions of independence and impartiality and our process needs to cater for that because it needs to be legitimate all over the world and so for example barristers chambers my prediction to you is in the next few years it will become increasingly difficult if not impossible for barristers to appear before arbitrators from the same chambers as them and the reason for that is barristers chambers yes you're each an independent, self-employed barrister, but you are part of an entity that is to a degree not profit-sharing, but you advertise your services together. And if you go onto Essex Court Chambers, for example, website, you will see that they have a brochure, and then you have a list of members. So somehow there is a financial interest, which is the same for different members of Chambers. And the perception of that is something that I think can give grounds to justifiable grounds. As the impartiality of an arbitrator that is presiding in a case where counsel from one of the parties is presenting before them. So I offer that as an example of the problem that still exists given that this is an international process and the fact that the IBA guidelines don't provide a solution to that. Uh, I'm pleased to say the IBA guidelines are presently being updated and I suspect that we will see um, the question of Barristers' Chambers dealt with explicitly in the next version. So that raises a question for arbitrators. They've got some guidance now, uh, the IBA guidelines. What should their disclosure policy be? And there's two different approaches they can take. One is, I'm going to disclose everything, but there's no doubt about it. Because, of course, failing to disclose, even if what you were going to disclose itself wouldn't amount to a good reason to be challenged, a failure to disclose can in many parts of the world itself constitute a valid ground for challenge. So some arbitrators react to that by disclosing everything. Um, and I guess one of the advantages of that is that you are taking no risks if you do that. Other arbitrators look at things differently. They say, I've got to take a decision, I've got to reach a view with whether a circumstance could give rise to justifiable doubts Uh, as to my independence and impartiality, and by disclosing something I am suggesting that it is relevant to the parties to consider in the context of that question. So I am aggrandizing the issue by disclosing it, and if I genuinely don't believe that it is an issue, therefore I shouldn't be required to disclose it. And you find some experienced arbitrators who will take the minimalist as opposed to the maximal approach. I think uh, my own view on that is it depends very much where you are sitting as an arbitrator. I think the idea of failing to disclose, for example, in the United States would be a big tactical error by the arbitrator because there there is an expectation that you disclose pretty much everything. The failure to disclose itself could be a problem in the future. So there's no right answer to that question, but I want you to be aware that arbitrators have to ask themselves that question when they take an appointment. I sit as an arbitrator myself and it is often the case working with a partner of a very large law firm uh, that works in 25 jurisdictions, 500 partners that somewhere, somehow, one of my partners is likely to work for a party that is related to one of the parties in the dispute. Do I disclose everything? Or do I decide that there are some things that are de minimis? Now, I don't have a good answer for you for that question, and different partners at my firm may take slightly different approaches to answering that question, but I wanted to expose that to you so you understand how difficult the issue can be. And one of the reasons it's difficult is that beyond the IBA guidelines, we have a real paucity of guidance, case law, on the arbitrator challenge issues institutions that decide arbitrator challenge cases, for example the ICC, will issue a one-line decision on whether the challenge has been successful or not. All you will see is yay or nay. That is it. And only you will see that. No one else will see it. So there is no explanation of the rationale, the reasoning behind the decision. An exception to that is the LCIA that has uh, a requirement that challenge decisions will be reasoned and actually some of the challenge decisions that the LCAA issues are extremely uh, discursive, sophisticated and well reasoned and they provide real guidance as to how these concepts of independence and impartiality will be applied by a major international institution. The problem with those reasoned decisions is historically they would only go to the parties in the dispute and so for many years practitioners such as myself would call upon the institutions at conferences openly to publish their decisions publish their in-house learning when the ICC makes a decision whether to accept or reject a challenge it is doing so by looking back at past decisions that were made on similar issues share those treasure troves of learning with the participants in the process. That will reduce the number of challenges because counsel will tell their clients, there's no point challenging in these circumstances because we've seen this institution reject such challenges in the past. Arbitrators will know whether to disclose or to accept an appointment because they've seen what the outcome of a challenge in similar circumstances have been. The institutions have been very reluctant historically to open up those treasure troves of learning Um, until a historic decision that was taken by the LCIA in 2006, I'm proud to say in response to a report that I drafted with one of my partners encouraging them, calling upon them to do so, to publish now all of their arbitrator challenge decisions in sanitized form for the whole community uh, to benefit from, and it is timely that I'm talking about this now because yesterday I received Uh, the LCIA's Arbitration International, their leading publication, in which they published, some five years later, the first tranche of decisions following their momentous decision to publish way back in 2006. So the treasure trove is slowly opening and I hope by the time that some of you are practicing international arbitration you will have more guidance than the likes of me have had in the past to answer clients' questions whether a challenge is likely to be successful or not. That is what I wanted to say, everybody. What it's wanted to say to you, everybody, about the criteria for appointing arbitrators: independence and impartiality, and how they're applied in practice. Before I move on to tactics, are there any questions about that?
2: So, when you talk about independence and impartiality, are they legally defined? When you talk about impartiality, independence? Are they legally defined? They and are. Be, uh, when you talk about uh, the arbitrators themselves, <coughs> saying, okay, what should be my disclosure? What should be the minimum? Should he be a
1: judge in his own case? Well, um, I think that is an extremely good question, the latter one. The first question is a simple no. There's no definition in arbitration laws, for example, the English Arbitration Act or the model law of what independence and impartiality mean. Deliberately so, because, um, for example, in a jurisdiction like England, the expectation is that that kind of standard will evolve through case law. Um, And in the model law, because there was an understanding and expectation that those standards might mean different things in different parts of the world where the model law was adopted. So the answer to your question is no, otherwise we wouldn't have this problem. Uh, Of course, there is case law on what independence and impartiality means. But one of the complaints and concerns I've had about the dearth of arbitral institutional learning being published on what independence and impartiality means is that it means that we have to look to national court cases as to what they mean. Now, a national court in Kenya, in Australia, in Canada will have a very local view of what independence and impartiality should mean, which may or may not be appropriate for the international realm of international arbitration. So we're left by default with parochial decisions by national courts that are being applied in international arbitration. And the request, the call that we made back in 2006, was give us an international counterweight to this national jurisprudence, that is consistent with international practice today and standards, and that is now what we're starting to see. The second part of your question, uh, which is uh, are we effectively on disclosure policy inviting arbitrators to be a judge in their own cause? The answer is yes. Arbitrators will take a decision. It's their discretion. It's their first judgement call in the case. Do I need to disclose something? Some institutions give some guidance to arbitrators but it is entirely up to them as to whether they accept it or not. The sanction, if they get that judgment call wrong, is at the end of the arbitration, or during the arbitration there is a challenge when a circumstance has been discovered, the end of the arbitration, if it is discovered, you have a basis, if you are the losing party, for challenging the award or its enforceability. So you are taking a risk as an arbitrator if on day one you decide to be economical Improperly economical with your disclosure. And that tends to mean, in response to your question, uh, that my experience is arbitrators tend to be more full, uh, maximalist in their disclosures rather than minimalist. Um, I have two questions as well. Um, Firstly, do you
2: think you can limit independence to outcome and impartiality to procedure of the arbitration? Uh, the process, think, that is clarification. And secondly, um, this thing that you talked about, the treasure trove opening, don't you think? I I know that uh, in arbitration to follow precedence as such. Like that, that there has been a working practice of following precedents, but don't you think that that makes it similar to litigation and that complicates the whole thing? Because it should actually be, it actually depends. Like every case
1: is different from the do you work at the ICC because <laughs> that is exactly what they say in response arbitration is not about precedence every case decided on its own facts we don't want to recreate the weight of litigation uh, and I understand that argument but I'm afraid I don't agree with it because sitting as counsel for clients who are asking you questions what is the likely outcome of this challenge it is very difficult for me to answer that question in a way that is reliable. And as a consequence of not being able to answer that question reliably, my clients will encourage me to make challenges that perhaps I should not be making. So the consequence of this dearth, of this lack of jurisprudence, is a lack of clarity. And neither is perfect, but of the two, we've suffered too much from, from the absence. We now need, arbitration is becoming a much more complex, and much more important process than it was even 20 years ago. We can't close our eyes to the decisions of the past. We need them to be made available to us. And my sense is, the LCA is the first sign of this, is that that argument is now, of course we can all hold different views on it, but that argument is now starting to prevail. On, On the first question, I wouldn't make that distinction between substance and procedure. Uh, Dependence is objectively, when both can apply to both, you shouldn't be partial in the way in which you decide procedural questions, and you shouldn't be partial in the way in which you decide substantive questions. Partiality relates to every decision you may take in the arbitration, not just the substantive questions. And in relation to independence, that is not getting at partiality at all, it's getting at a factual relationship that you have as a proxy for therefore saying, because you're dependent, therefore you are likely to be in any of your decisions, procedural or substantive, partial. So I would not make the distinction on the basis of procedure and substance, I'd make the (coughs) distinction between dependence and partiality by way of subjective state of mind and objective independence factual relationship with the parties or the council you were speaking earlier of using a challenge as a way to put the arbitrator on notice of your knowledge that there may be um, uh, of your knowledge that uh, trying to put him on notice of your knowledge that there may be reasons for him not to become an arbitrator in, in, the, in the case however other than challenges, are there ways that uh, either party can use in order to reach the same
0: uh, result of letting the arbitrator know that you're watching? Uh, but that is not a challenge, something that is maybe softer in practice? Uh,
1: yes, and it's a very good question. Uh, you know, sometimes, I'm going to come onto this a little bit when we talk about tactics, but sometimes you know, the best outcome for you is for your opponent to appoint an obvious partisan to the tribunal. And I'll talk to you why that is really good for you in international arbitration. Uh, But accept that proposition for now, because we'll explore it later. If that is the case, then you may decide that the best thing for you is not to challenge this arbitrator, but to make sure that she stays on the tribunal. Um, So long as the other arbitrators know who they're dealing with. And so an arbitration I've been involved in very recently uh, for a couple of oil companies that had a dispute with the Nigerian National Petroleum Company, very large dispute, two billion US dollars in dispute. I got the award last week, I'm pleased to say it was a good result for my clients. Uh, my Nigerian opponent appointed an arbitrator who I learned two weeks before the procedural hearing had appeared as counsel for the Federal Republic of Nigeria in unrelated proceedings one month earlier. Now that raises a real question. You know, you're, you're now appointed by the National Oil Company, where you have a relationship as counsel for the Federal Republic that is controlling de jure and de facto de facto, that national oil company. It should have been something that you disclosed. And indeed, the fact of not disclosing itself might be a grounds for challenge. We made a decision very early on, and I'm going to explain why as we come on to the tactics, that our best interests were served by keeping that individual on the tribunal, but making sure that our other two arbitrators knew exactly who they were dealing with. So at the procedural hearing that followed two weeks after I made this discovery, uh, I made a statement on the record, we have become aware of this information, Uh, we think it should have been disclosed, Uh, For the record, we're confirming that we uh, do not think that this stops Professor X, and I won't tell you his name, in case anyone knows him, uh, from sitting on this tribunal. Uh, We are not making a challenge, and we're very happy for this tribunal to continue with its mission. Full stop. Now, that did two things. First of all, it meant that this arbitrator would stay on the tribunal. Uh, and indeed that his prior representation of a related party very recently would not be used in the future to challenge him and therefore unravel the result of the arbitration. Secondly, I was sending a message to the other two arbitrators. Just in case you're in any doubt about the independence or impartiality uh, of the person sitting to your right, just be aware of this. And that sends a very important message to the chairman of the tribunal who will hear from both arbitrators and reaches view who he was dealing with, and that was a very important dynamic in the future of the case. What I haven't done yet, and I'm going to do it, is explain why it's good tactics to make sure that that arbitrator stays in place. And I'm going to ask you some questions about that. But let me come to that because that's a, at a developed point in the presentation uh, on tactics. I've taken a little longer with independence and impartiality, everybody, that I wanted to because this is the fun stuff. Yeah? Independence and impartiality, they're the requirements, they're the criteria. Now we're getting to the tactics. Appointing your arbitrator, um, what are the considerations? Well, the first question you have to ask yourself, if this has not been determined in your arbitration clause, as is sometimes the case, is whether you want one or three arbitrators. I want you to tell me what the advantage of a sole arbitrator might be to the parties. It's cheaper. Cheaper important to clients. Any other good reason? Related related to it being cheaper? Of course. Those are the two good reasons. So if your dispute is relatively small, relatively straightforward, you may want it to go to a sole arbitrator for those two reasons. Okay, inversely, what are the reasons for avoiding a sole arbitrator, insisting upon a three-member tribunal? i sorry? So that you have at least one
2: person who's going to decide the your
1: favor. It means you can appoint one individual. Yes, uh, that, that's, uh, that may make you feel more comfortable. But it filters the process, filtration, because you have three people. That's the key. Um, I'd explain it like this yeah. one individual can always make a mistake. You are subject to the foibles and failings of a single human being three-member tribunal, one would hope is going to provide you with slightly more reliable justice because you have three individuals who are thinking about the same issue. So in our cases, for example, the Freshfields, the large disputes, it is very rare that we are willing to put one of our cases before a sole arbitrator. So that's the first question you ask yourself, one or three. Then the second question you ask yourself is, in choosing your arbitrator, can you interview her or her? what do you think the answer to that question is? With certain ifs
2: and do's and don'ts, which have been... Yeah, (laughs) I I guess I'm giving the
1: answer away by the (laughs) second sum, but of course... Yeah, the answer is, uh, there was a dis-incentive, a a dislike of interviewing when I started practice. It is now becoming half of the course. Um, It is now becoming, in the major cases, something that clients require but there are do's and don'ts Um, there are things that you must avoid. The last thing you want by interviewing someone is creating a ground for challenge by having the interview. So what are the do's and don'ts? Well, it is not appropriate to suggest anything about the case and therefore get a response from the arbitrator that indicates how the arbitrator will decide a procedural or a substantive issue in the dispute by the question you ask. For example, so, Professor, why would you consider yourself a black letter lawyer, or someone that looks to interpret a contract in the way that the parties intended? You don't answer that question because the arbitrator is being given a sense of what answer you want, and you are crossing the line as a consequence. There is no good answer in terms of independence and impartiality, in terms of propriety, to a question such as that. So you don't ask questions relating to legal approach to procedural approach. So what is left? Well, what you can do is, and we don't need to do it for ourselves, because we know who the arbitrators are, we will not appoint someone on one of our cases that we ourselves do not know. That we have not appeared before in another case that I have not sat with on a tribunal and therefore know the quality of. It's for our clients. What we tell our clients you can do is Ultimately, ask questions about what the arbitrator has done in the past. Tell me about your experience. Um, it says on your CV you've done an oil and gas case. Tell me about that. Tell me about the issues that were involved. So long as you avoid questions that are designed to elicit a responses to legal approach or procedural approach, uh, you are staying the right side of the line. Wouldn't ask me a question about a previous. Uh involvement in case as an arbitrator be asking that question? No. Um, I'd like to know what is your name? Gabriel. Gabriel. Good. I'd like to know whether you've ever arbitrated an oil and gas case before. And if so, just tell me about it. Tell me what was what issues were involved. So you're asking the arbitrator to provide you with factual information, but you're not asking the arbitrator and um, were you interpreting a production-sharing contract? Yes, that question you could get away with. And interpreting that production-sharing contract, do you think that, you know, the terms of the contract are are very significant? There you cross the line. But asking what kinds of disputes have you done before is telling you nothing more than what the experience of the arbitrator uh, is. Now, the way I approach these, and I'm doing more and more of them now, is I tell my clients that you should only ask questions that you are happy to be recorded and produced to the other side so self-policing that is the discipline because the the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators have produced guidelines for interviewing arbitrators and one of their proposals and it's just a guideline is that if you are an arbitrator in this situation you produce a note of the meeting that is disclosed to the other side now I have never seen an arbitrator do this uh, but it is a very good discipline for you and your client to remember that this is something that the arbitrator may want to do and that should keep you the right side of the line one approach uh, in relation to these interviews is is the following there is no such thing as an inappropriate question it's the answer that's inappropriate so you can ask whatever you want of the arbitrator but what, what really matters is what the arbitrator is willing to say back to you. So if you ask the question, are you a black letter lawyer? Do you value sanctity of contract, for example? Might be a nice way of putting it. Um, as long as the arbitrator doesn't answer, answer that question, nothing inappropriate has happened. Now, I think that's nice in theory. I think the better way to police those situations is by not asking the questions. But interviewing candidates is now more common, particularly in the large cases that have macroeconomic uh, significance and international arbitrations increasingly do have that. So then we come to the core. What are the criteria you apply for choosing your arbitrator? I've got three headings here. Law language and subject matter expertise. Predisposition to your case influence on the likely chairperson. I want to go through them briefly in turn. The first way in which you look to appoint your arbitrator is, you have a dispute. You're acting for, for example, an American oil company um, against the stale oil company of Algeria, Sonitrak, for example. That's something I have on my mind right now. Uh, the governing law is Algerian law, which is based on uh, the Napoleonic Code. Um, the language of the arbitration is English, but there are some, fr- there are likely to be some French language laws that you're going to have to interpret. And some of the communications from Sinatraq is going to be Francophone. So one way of looking at this is to say, well, what is the relevant law? Napoleonic code-based. Maybe I'll go for a Frenchman, for example. Um, what language is irrelevant? Well, someone who has knowledge of French might be useful, even though the arbitration is, e- is in English. And the subject matter is hydrocarbons, so I'm going to go for someone who has some experience of hydrocarbons. So that's a kind of straightforward way of doing it. And you'll probably make a goodish choice. But we take that process much further now in international arbitration. The real art of appointment is respecting the principles of independence and impartiality, choosing the profile of the individual in such a way that makes you think. But that individual will be predisposed to deciding the case in your favor. So the question that you can't ask in the interview, are you a black letter lawyer? Or are you someone that tries to give effect to the party's commercial intent? When you sit down with the case at the very beginning, before you've appointed to your tribunal, your first job as an arbitration counsel is to work out what your case theory is going to be. I'm going to have to, somehow, go beyond this language and this clause because it makes no commercial sense and it doesn't help my case. So I'm looking for someone who I think is going to be more willing to do that. Someone who's going to really look to the commercial intent. And the reason you come to someone who knows international arbitration is because I appear before many arbitrators. I sit with many arbitrators as arbitrator myself. Hopefully I have a view, hopefully a well-informed view, of which arbitrators fall into the category of likely to be amenable to that kind of argument. And that is a judgment call, and that is the art of arbitration. That requires you to envisage how a particular individual will react to the facts and issues in your case. And it's what the great practitioners can do. And the world of international arbitration is still small enough, there are probably 150 arbitrators around the world that sit in 70 or 80 percent. Of the top cases in the world, and that is a number that you can really master. They'll all be at the Fresh Freshfields Arbitration Lecture at the end of this month. If you're interested in meeting them, so
2: then you should not be having if it's a uh, if it's a seller's market and the number is so small. Uh, then I, I think you cannot. Uh, I think whether to have this intervene on the candidates, if the number is too large, if it's a supplier's market. Then I have a choice, but here you're saying the top 150. It's a, it's Never under. It's, 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 it's a very good point, and there are some
1: arbitrators who will not subject themselves to the interview process. Yeah. Um, increasingly few, increasingly few, because never underestimate uh, the uh, willingness of an arbitrator to make sure that he or she lands a big appointment even the good ones arbitrators like counsel in cases are always worried where the the next case is coming from and they're always worried that all of their existing cases are going to settle and so you find that there is a real incentive, notwithstanding those statistics for arbitrators to do what is required to be appointed within the constraints that I have mentioned what I will say about the process, and I am a believer in it, is that when appointed arbitrators, in my experience genuinely decide cases as they see them. They understand that their most important capital is their virtue. As soon as they get a reputation for being someone that's just going to vote the way of the party that appointed them, they become useless for that party. So they won't get any appointments. I'm not going to appoint someone that I know the chairman is going to think is always going to vote for me because he will disregard that individual that individual loses influence on the tribunal so the capital arbitrators have is their virtue that is what guarantees the process but within that what we do is try and work out how arbitrators are likely to see cases and that is a lot more complex than just deciding is someone a common lawyer and therefore likely to take a more textualist approach to a contractual interpretation or is someone a civil lawyer who is likely to look more easily beyond the language of the contract to the party's underlying intent. And that, I can't explain any differently than saying to you that some arbitrators regard, some counsel regard it as reading tea leaves. For others, it really is the key to the art of arbitration and it's the part of the process that I regard as most significant for my clients when they're asking me the question who should we appoint? how extensive is my experience that allows me to give them a well-informed answer to that question that brings us to the third bullet I'm going to keep, I'm going to pick up some pace here because I'm, I'm running a little bit behind and that is influence on the likely chairperson and I just touched on that ultimately what you are looking for is someone who is independent and impartial and therefore will not be successfully challenged who is because of their outlook likely to be predisposed to your case theory and who also is the kind of individual that is likely to exercise influence in the right sense of that word on the most important member of the tribunal who is the chairperson, the third arbitrator, the person with the presiding role procedurally, the person with the deciding vote in most cases. And one of the things we do as part of the art of arbitration is to work out who is likely to be chairman at the beginning of the case and then work backwards from that in choosing a profile that we think is likely to be influential with that likely chairperson and uh, that sounds very intricate, it sounds very complicated but it is what we do and because the world of arbitration is not so big still actually it can work And I wanted to give you an example of that, uh, which is uh, a case that I was involved in. A very large dispute between Arthur Anderson and Anderson Consulting. This was when Arthur Anderson was one big entity that had a consulting wing. And the partners within Anderson Consulting decided to divorce from Arthur Anderson. And it led to a very large arbitration multi-billion dollar arbitration a claim by Arthur Anderson for many billions against Anderson Consulting for alleged breach of the partnership agreement much was at stake uh, I was acting uh, as part of the counsel team for Anderson Consulting uh, the team was led by an American lawyer who had spent much time uh, in jury trials and indeed as a jury trial lawyer had spent much time choosing juries And he approached the uh, question of appointing an arbitrator in a very sophisticated way before the arbitration was even launched. He decided to present the case that they would be presenting to different types of mock arbitrators that had different profiles. And from that, the decision was reached about the optimal profile for the case that Anderson Consultant were presenting. And the profile was a sole arbitrator, an academic from an emerging world country. And because this was Arthur Anderson versus Edison Consulting, there were many jurisdictions that simply could not be selected because you cannot share the nationality of one of the parties. And these were the partners who were involved, so there weren't that many nationalities left. A Colombian law professor was chosen as sole arbitrator to decide this dispute between Arthur Anderson uh, and Anderson Consulting in New York, a Professor Gamba, Uh, and it was a very big call for counsel for Arthur Anderson Anderson Consulting to make. If they got this wrong, you'd look at this decision and say, what the hell were you playing at? A sole arbitrator? Someone who isn't from the commercial world? An academic sole arbitrator? Who doesn't have English as a first language? Anyway, the choice was made... Anderson Consulting 1, it turned into a genius call. And I'll never forget it, and it's an extreme example, that it doesn't happen very often, of the art of arbitration working best. I'm going to come back to my uh, warning that you should never appoint an obvious partisan in a case. And my example of my attempt to ensure that when my opponent had done this in my Nigeria case, that that individual stayed on the tribunal. I hope it's clear to you now why that is a bad tactical choice. As soon as you appoint an obvious partisan, you are appointing someone who should have very little influence on the chairperson of the tribunal when it comes to decision making. You're effectively excluding your chosen arbitrator from the core of the decision making process. And indeed in my Nigeria case, there has been a, de- a dissenting opinion uh, rendered by uh, the arbitrator that I chose not to challenge but it is a legal irrelevance because this is a system that works on majority. So, the arbitrator excluded himself from the decision making process, ultimately made my job easier and that was the tactical, the tactical call that we made at the outset of the arbitration. Avoid the obvious partisan and you would have picked up on my use of the word obvious partisan does that mean that we should look for a partisan that is not obvious and this brings us to the proposal made by Jan Paulson Professor Paulson recently uh, in an article that he wrote in Miami called The Moral Hazard of International Arbitration which is premised on the fact that we may have these standards of independence and impartiality but how difficult is it to truly be sure that the relationship that you create in appointing an arbitrator does not lead that arbitrator to feel, at some level, that they must find in your favour. The moral hazard. And the proof of the existence of the moral hazard is the following. If you look at the dissenting opinions that are rendered in international arbitration, 95% of dissenting opinions are rendered by arbitrators in favour of the party that appointed them. I am not aware, I say 95%, I'm personally not aware of of the dissent ever being rendered by an arbitrator effectively against the party that appointed him or her. Now that suggests that beneath the surface of the process there may be something a little bit wrong with international arbitration. Now one reaction to that is um, to say, as I did earlier, that is not the generality. There are very few dissenting opinions in international arbitration. They are the exception, not the norm. And the real capital that arbitrators must guard is the capital that says to the world they are independent, the capital of virtue. And that is the greatest safeguard of the process. Uh, and, and that is, in my experience, the reality. But it has not stopped some. Jan Paulsen from calling for a change in the system and the, the change is this, that actually when I go back to the first point I made, it isn't really so important or it shouldn't be so important to the parties that they have an opportunity to appoint their arbitrator because the co commitment to that is that the other party also have that opportunity why not best get rid of both opportunities and have institutions appointing all three members of the tribunal. And Jan's proposal was born uh, of his experience as president of the LCAA, in which capacity he had the role of choosing arbitrators where the parties called on the institution to choose the arbitrators or in circumstances where the parties had not chosen the arbitrators or in circumstances where they were unable to agree on the arbitrators in all those circumstances the LCA would choose all three members of the tribunal and what he observed was how better functioning the process was how you dealt immediately with the dysfunctions of the appointment process by ensuring that all three members of the tribunal were appointed by the institution. It stopped any uncertainty or suspicion amongst the tribunal. It meant that they were all on the same page, not worried about how to present something to the parties that had appointed them. It resulted in better quality justice. This was his observation. And so he has made this proposal but he's called himself, accurately, a lone voice in the desert because that is what he is. And the reality is I don't agree with him um, even though he is my mentor and many others would say the same thing. And the reason we don't agree with him is because it really is important to our clients that they get an opportunity to appoint an arbitrator. The process does work because arbitrators are more concerned about their reputation of independence than they are about the outcome of any particular case And that is why the process works. And thirdly, because whatever may be right or wrong about the way I appoint an arbitrator, why should I trust an institution to do it better? For all those reasons, um, I would say to you that Jan's proposal, an important one, a thought-provoking one, resulting in a very significant debate, I hope is doomed. And I've told him so. So conclusions, everybody, as we come up to ten to eight and then I'll open the floor out for some final questions. Uh, arbitration is intuiti persona. It is personal. It is the very opposite of anonymous justice that is valued, for example, by the English legal system. The reason why judges all wear weeks is because their individuality is supposed to be an irrelevance you are appearing before English law, not an individual. International arbitration is the very opposite. You're choosing your arbitrator for his individual qualities, her individual qualities. It is intuitive personae, and that is an important key feature of the process. However, as we've discussed, the ability to choose your decision maker creates a very significant tension that needs to be addressed. And it is addressed. Uh, by the standards of independence and impartiality, although there is an ongoing concern as to whether those standards can fully police the tension that arises. Beyond that tension, beyond those standards, we get to the tactics of international arbitration appointment of arbitrators, which, as I've tried to convey to you, is a very significant part of our practice it leads to the tension because we're looking for arbitrators that will optimize our chances of success whilst remaining independent and that leads to the question will this change in the future and you've heard my answer to that there is nothing more fascinating in the process of international arbitration than seeing an arbitral tribunal dynamic from the inside seeing how arbitrators who are appointed by parties spend the first half of a case convincing their colleagues that they are truly independent, that they've forgotten who has appointed them, and then seeing whether they are able to maintain that in the deliberations. It is an extremely interesting, sociologically, psychologically, very interesting process. The way I got to see it at the beginning of my career was not by being an arbitrator, but by being a secretary to the tribunal. Um, so arbitrators have the facility to appoint a secretary who will assist them in administrative functions rather like a clerk to justices in some judicial forum except in international arbitration they are called administrative secretaries and there is a debate about whether their role can be anything other than purely administrative and i read an article about that about ten years ago which was called the fourth arbitrator question mark people remember the phrase but they forget the punctuation so they see it as my attempt to suggest that um, secretaries could have more substantive roles in fact I wrote it at a time where I wanted to make myself unemployable as the secretary to the tribunal anymore because I had enough of doing this so I thought this article would achieve that Um, but I raised questions which many in the community are discussing still today which is what is the appropriate role of an arbitral secretary it raises different issues those issues I think properly the subject of a different (coughs) seminar, Um, suffice to say that if any of you are interested in international arbitration and want to take a look inside of uh, the edifice, then the best way to do it at the beginning of your careers is to become, as part of your uh, training, um, a secretary to tribunals. Uh, something that I learned a great deal from and I would commend to you. And with that everybody, I've come to the end of my presentation five minutes earlier, which is unusual. We have a few more minutes for questions. I think many of you have asked questions as we've gone on, but I'm very happy to hear and try and deal with any more. Um, I'm wondering
2: in uh, since the pool of is small, to that Arbitrators. If both the parties in an arbitration were to approach the same arbitrator at different times, um, do you think there is a guideline on the code of conduct for the arbitrator to disclose it to the latter one when the first one has already approached me? Or, I mean, does it fall in either of the three categories of five way rules of disclosure, or is it not that significant enough?
1: It doesn't. It probably doesn't occur sufficiently for it to be significant, but it does raise an interesting question uh, which is let us say... Because I was just
2: trying to draw the analogy with lawyers, you know, so if, if, if a client if actually briefs the lawyer and then the other side goes and briefs the lawyer, the lawyer up front discloses that you know, I've already been briefed in this matter or that he may not yet be appearing on the particular way of the matter is...
1: I don't think, I don't think that, that is a paramount. Oh. Uh, if you've been briefed on a matter as counsel and you have privileged information. You have confidential information. You cannot be briefed for the other side uh, without breaching your ethical uh, obligations. And an arbitrator that is approached to be arbitrator should not be the subject of confidential information unless the rules on the approach to the arbitrator have been absolutely transgressed. And if they have, if he has, she has, confidential information clearly, that would need to be disclosed and would be um, without doubt, in my question, immediately disqualifiable. Uh, when you're having your interview, if you're disclosing confidential information, you are going well beyond the guidelines that I've been discussing.
2: If there's a potential conflict of interest arising between a member of council and the arbitrator. That would fall under, be classified under the orange list. Would you consider it a reasonable alternative to instead challenge the member of council instead of challenging the arbitrator?
1: Now you're going to have to ask Jan that question when he comes in because that happened in a case where he was a member of the tribunal, uh, where in the final hearing, without any warning, counsel for the investor, it was a treaty claim, turned up with. A barrister from the chambers of the chairman of the tribunal never before appeared, and put the chairman in an extraordinarily difficult position. Immediately, counsel for the respondent said, "We will not accept this, and we do not like the fact that the claimant has put." Mm-hmm. So, actually, it was the respondent state. Respondent state has put the chairman in this position, where the, res, the chairman is now in a difficult position. May mm-hmm. have to resign. So, we are making an application to the tribunal to exercise its inherent jurisdiction to organize and control these proceedings to exclude from the arbitration that council. And the tribunal did it. They excluded the council uh, on the basis that the alternative was for the chairman to resign. And that was um, something that could not be countenanced. It caused great controversy in the field of international arbitration. I personally have to believe it was the right decision. And Jan was on that tribunal and I'm sure will be happy to explain the thought process that came into that decision, which is now published. Could that be a reason for virtuality? The fact that the arbitrator has ruled against allowing one council or one person to be within the council team? Yeah, I've, I've seen those challenges made, challenges that are made that because you've ruled against me, therefore you are biased. They tend to fail, thankfully. Uh,
2: so you talked about. You talked about the professor being appointed as the arbitrator, professor from Columbia. Should professors be arbitrators who do not have the practical uh, insights? And number two, as the lady asked the question. If uh, if uh, if the arbitrator does not give you that service, because he's also it's a contract of service and I'm appointing you, should not damages be uh, kind of you uh, sh- can claim damages if from, he from the arbitrator? If for he what perform, reason? For he doesn't perform, he doesn't give me the services which are required. If he resigns, but uh, well, but that does, that does not solve the problem. So, you're
1: saying, can you claim damages from the arbitrator in what circumstance? Circumstances
2: that he has not performed his job, he has not uh, done his duty, there's a misconduct. Because when you're appointing an arbitrator, it's also a contract of service in a way?
1: Well, um, two know. different questions. Uh, the answer to the first question is I see no reason why professors shouldn't be arbitrators. There may be cases where uh, they are very well uh, qualified to deal with those with, with the issues in dispute. Many uh, professors have worked as practitioners with significant commercial experience. Commercial experience isn't always the most important thing. You may decide to choose an arbitrator for his or her knowledge of a particular area of law. And a professor may have that in abundance. So I think it depends on the case as to what the appropriate choice of arbitrator is. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to exclude anyone uh, because of their chosen profession. And if you did exclude professors in international arbitration, you know that that, that bunch of 150 I was talking about? It would get quite smaller. Um, On the second question you ask, it's it's an interesting conceptual question. Uh, Arbitrators, uh, I think the right legal analysis is, do have a contractual relationship with the parties. It's a contract for services. Uh, However, they also, as part of that contract, and this is the case all over the world, either have complete or qualified immunity. And that is something that you will see in most, if not all, major rules of international arbitration. Because if they didn't, you'd worry every time you accepted an appointment. It would make sitting as an arbitrator in a contentious by definition situation a very risky livelihood. So the answer is yes, there is a contract of services. But as part of that contract, we are being offered immunity, save in circumstances, obviously, of fraud.
2: Since the the role of allocation is so small, um, and when I look at IBA rules or other ones, and they describe the relationships that seem to cause problems, they mainly focus on previous uh, context that that they should be, for instance, and they come from the same uh, law firm or something. Would you consider the problem if they had more, i say that,
1: that they work at the same um, academic institution? For instance? Well, you're right in describing the tension. It's a small world, and yet we're requiring independence and impartiality. There are many circumstances where For example, I'm appearing at an ICC conference in two weeks where I'm sharing the panel with the chairman of the tribunal that I'm appearing in front of. Is that something that should be disclosable? Uh, The answer is no. Actually, my opponent is also on the next panel. Uh, It happens so often, um, and it really doesn't, genuinely, unless you're interested, I think, in, in frivolous challenge, it really doesn't change the state of mind of the arbitrator. Um, As to academic institutions, I think it depends on the nature of the link, I'm afraid. So, if for example Jan was appearing, sitting as an arbitrator, uh, Jan Paulsen, in a case and Jan Klein-Heisterkamp had been hired as counsel in that case, I would think that that would be an issue because of the closeness of the actual relationship created probably disclosable, but not something that would disqualify him, but certainly disclosable. Um, If the link within the LSE was far more tenuous, then the analysis would be, is there a shared financial interest in the outcome of this case? I think the answer to that question is no, because it's not going to change anything about the other professor's earnings this year, whether the case is decided one way or the other. So it's very difficult to see a real dependency being created and ultimately that isn't the only level at which you analyse the situation, it's not simply about money, Uh, clearly it shouldn't be, Um, but it's where you would start and I think you'd start with a problem if you were making that challenge. Okay. Well, everybody, I um, I think we've come to the end of today's lecture. Thank you for your attention. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it.